The reading is from John chapter 18 and verses 15 to 27. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "'You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you?' she asked Peter. He replied, "'I am not.' It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. Thanks very much, Liz. Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. If you want to keep that passage open, that would be great, and I'm going to pray for God's help as we look at it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, please would you open your word up to us, and would you open us up to your word that we might know you better and that we might love you more, and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if anyone's seen this film on the screen here, The Green Mile. It's a a pretty somber film that focuses on a group of inmates in an American prison who are awaiting execution on death row. And it's called The Green Mile because of the long, lonely green corridor that links the cells to the execution chamber, and it is the mile, it's the long, lonely walk that they make as they journey towards their death. And what we have before us in John chapter 18 and 19 is Jesus' equivalent of the green mile. These are the final steps of Christ, the glorious one, the divine son, as he makes his way to the cross in order to die for our sin. And throughout John's gospel, the the hour, as it's called, the hour of Jesus' death has been clearly in view. As far back as John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus speaks of this hour. My hour, he says, has not yet come. Again, chapter 7, verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour 
had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. At this point in John's gospel, the appointed time for Jesus' death had not yet arrived. But as the Lord Jesus wanders into Jerusalem for the final time, a week before his death, so we read that the hour has now arrived. Chapter 12, verse 27. So Jesus prays, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour? Jesus says, shall I be, shall I be saved from the hour of my death? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. And again in John chapter 17, verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And last week we saw that hour begin to unfold in the Garden of Gethsemane as we saw the glorious one betrayed at the hands of the treachery of Judas. And this morning we see the glorious one denied by his closest friend and ally. And our three main characters in in our story before us this morning give us our three main points. Firstly, we find Peter in denial. Secondly, we find the religious authorities in the dark. And then wonderfully, we find the Lord Jesus still in control. Let's pick up the story then in, in verse 15 as we think about the denial of Peter. Simon Peter, verse 15, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Now, this other unnamed disciple that we read of here in verse 15 has traditionally been identified as John, the author of this gospel, which would explain why we have such a detailed account of what happens here inside the high priest's courtyard. But whoever he was, we learn that he had access all areas. He wandered into the high priest's courtyard following Jesus while Peter stayed outside. And then he went back to the door and enabled access for Peter as well. And as Peter walks through the door, so he stopped. Almost like a bouncer on the way into a pub. And he's questioned by a servant girl on the door. And she says to him, look, verse 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. What a contrast we find in the life of Jesus and the life of Peter. Three times in the garden, Jesus was questioned by the soldiers. And on each occasion, Jesus said, I am he. The divine declaration, I am he, says Jesus. Three times, Peter is questioned as to whether he is a follower of Jesus. And on three occasions, he says, I am not. I am not. What an enigma Peter is, isn't he? So full of of love and passion and red-hot zeal for Jesus one minute, yet so full of weakness 
and cowardice the next. It's only last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it, where we, we witnessed Peter swinging his sword in defense of Jesus. And now just hours later, when questioned by a slave girl, he bottles it and denies that he even knows Jesus at all. And of course, both circumstances, Peter was in the wrong. Jesus didn't need defending, remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane, have a look back at verse 11. This is where we were last week. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus says, Peter, don't try and stop this. I must drink from the cup of suffering in order that you might drink forever from the cup of blessing. This was the hour, remember, for which Jesus came, and he did not need defending from this hour. But what he did want was Peter's allegiance in this hour. And that's exactly what Peter denied him in verse 17. And of course, as most of us probably know, he didn't just do it once, but he did it on two more occasions. Have a look down at verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter again denied it. And at that moment, the cock began to crow. Very easy for us to sit here this morning and shake our collective heads at Peter. What a disappointment Peter has been once again. But of course, what we see in Peter, we see in our own lives. It's not just Peter that's full of of weakness in moments like that, but we too are prone to wonder. And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning is what led to Peter's downfall? What led to these moments of weakness that we see in the life of Peter? And how therefore can we prevent ourselves treading the same path that Peter trod? And I want to suggest to you this morning three reasons. Three reasons why Peter went wrong. And the first one you'll see there on the screen, he took the easy option. And that's why we see Peter standing there with the officials rather than standing there with Jesus. And we've all been there, haven't we? Maybe on the school playground and there's a group of pals that you stood with and and they're mocking the Christian faith and they're laughing with Jesus and we can either stand with them and snigger away or, or maybe pretend we've not heard it or we can stand apart and stand with Jesus. How often we take the easy option and stand with the crowd rather than standing with Christ. Or maybe there's, there's people around you that are repeatedly using the Lord's name in vain. I remember my footballing days, been in the change room, and the language and the abuse that was going around, and quite often Jesus was at the center of it, and you know it's wrong. But the easy option, of course, is just to stand back and to do nothing. Or maybe on a Monday morning and someone asks you, what did you get up to at the weekend? What did you do over the weekend? And, and you recite everything that you got up to, but you omit Sunday morning. That you went to church and you forget to tell them what you learnt about the Lord Jesus. Why? Because it might make things slightly awkward. And so instead, we omit that. And we take the easy option instead. 
or maybe something dubious happening at work morally or ethically, and your conscience is pricked, and you know it's not right what's happening. But if you say something, what will that mean for you? Your bonus and and your career path and everything that you've wanted, will it put that on the line? So what do you do? Do you stand up for truth? Do you speak what is right? How often we take the easy option. And that's exactly what Peter did. Peter chose comfort in the immediate rather than commendation from Christ in the future. And we're all prone to do the same. Peter took the easy option. And secondly, Peter was blind to his own weakness. Have a look at those words on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand the maze of mess that is in the human heart? Peter certainly couldn't understand his own heart and the nature of sin within You may remember back in chapter 13, verse 37, when Peter boldly asserted, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. Wherever you go, I'll go, Jesus. I'm with you. Right to the end. But you remember the response of Jesus? Were you really, Peter? Were you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You see, Jesus knew Peter far better than Peter knew himself. Peter thought he was strong. He thought he was strong. Jesus knew that he was weak. And so when Jesus warns us of the waywardness of our own hearts, let's not be naive and think that we know better than Jesus. The first step to defeating the enemy and walking well with Christ is to know the enemy and to know the weakness that lies within our own hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things. And that's why we need to pray for God's help, which brings us to our third reason and probably the most significant. Prayerlessness in the garden. You remember three times Jesus called his disciples to pray. On each occasion, he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But instead of praying, what did they do? They slept. They slept instead of praying. You see, the battle had already been lost. Before Peter even arrived at the door to the courtyard, the battle had been lost already. The battle was lost when Peter failed to heed the words of the Lord Jesus and dropped to his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and pray for God's power and for God's protection to live for God's glory that day. And Peter failed to pray. The reason we fail to stand for Jesus in the day is because we fail to kneel before him in the morning. The reason we fail to speak up for, the, for Christ in the day and declare our allegiance to Christ is because we fail to pray to him in the morning. And so I must ask you, do you pray? Do you pray as a priority in the morning for yourself, for your family, and for this church that we might stand well for Christ in the week ahead? I've put in my notes here, don't pray for people later. 
pray for them now. It's the classic Christian cliche, isn't it? You've been in a conversation about the struggles and the challenges of life and, and what's happened and what's coming up, and, and we'll say, oh, I'll pray for you later. Classic Christian cliche. I'll pray for you later. Of course, pray for them later. But please don't say that without stopping and praying for them now. Don't put off till later what you could do now. What a lovely culture it would be, wouldn't it? In our conversations in all of life, when you're talking about real life, real stuff, real challenges, gospel moments, opportunities, pains, hurts, hardships, and our first instinct isn't, I'll pray for you later. No, let's pray now. Don't put it off. Don't sleep. Bow the knee before Jesus and pray in prayerful dependence that he might be all that you need in that moment and in the week ahead. Because if we fail to pray, then we'll end up making exactly the same mistakes as Peter. Firstly, we find Peter in denial. Secondly, we find the authorities in the dark. Have a look at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus says, look, I've not been sneaking around in the shadows. I've spoken publicly and clearly in the synagogues, in the temple. There are hundreds of people who could testify to all that I have said about myself. You see, there is nothing covert about the mission of Jesus. But do you see the response there in verse 22? What a horrible way to be remembered in history. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped or struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. This man struck Jesus in the face. It's easy to pass over that. This man struck the all-glorious, divine Son of God in the face. A picture maybe of how so many treat the Lord Jesus today. Abusive words, derogatory comments, mocking, scoffing, ridicule. And on each occasion, it's like they are slapping Jesus in the face. I wonder what our reaction is when we see that happen. I wonder if you'd have been there around the fire, put yourself around that scene in the high priest courtyard. You're warming yourself by the fire. And about 15 yards away, you overhear the conversation we just read about. And then you see this man step forward and strike Jesus in the face. What do you do? Do you run over, strike him back and defend Jesus? Do you turn your back on the official in disgust? Or would you walk up to him and gently call him to repent of his sin and kneel before Jesus? You see, that unnamed official in verse 22 will one day stand before the risen Christ. And these perceived positions of power that we read about here will be turned upside down because on that day, Jesus will not be stood before the officials on trial. 
They will be stood before our risen Lord in judgment. We shouldn't be afraid of people that abuse Jesus like that. We shouldn't turn our back on them in disgust or walk away from them. But we should move towards them in love because they are totally in the dark when it comes to knowing who Jesus is. And with God's help, they need to be moved into the light of the gospel. And in the response of Jesus, we see something of his wonderful grace there, don't we, in verse 23. Incredible patience, remarkable restraint. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You see this whole episode just wrong, isn't it? Everything you read in here is just wrong. The authorities aren't bothered about the truth. The officials couldn't care less about the truth. Anas is not bothered about the truth. Caiaphas couldn't care less about the truth. They just want rid of Jesus. As we read in the parallel account, look in Matthew's gospel, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking. They were actively looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, although many false witnesses came forward. You see, under Jewish law, trials were not allowed to take place at night. This is an illegal trial. The whole thing is an absolute sham that shows just how far these religious authorities have fallen. It is a scene that is just shrouded in darkness. But of course, the darkness isn't just around them. The darkness is in them. Because these officials are totally in the dark when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. And like so many today, they condemn Christ without even giving him a fair hearing. I remember being in a conversation with a pal at a a wedding reception a good few years ago now. And this guy's pretty outspoken against the Christian faith. And we had a conversation and it ended up really with him just finishing by saying, well, the whole thing's just a load of rubbish, isn't it? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the whole thing, Jesus, the story's just a load of rubbish. And I said, well, have you actually read any of the accounts that you're calling rubbish? He said, well, no, but I've heard stories. I just know it's rubbish. And we're quite good friends, so I could be quite blunt with him. I said, I said, that's pretty stupid. For a clever man, that is pretty stupid. Because you've condemned Jesus without even looking at the evidence. How foolish a judge that would be. Yeah? Someone comes and stands in a court of law and without even listening to any evidence says guilty and out they go. So many people do that with Jesus. They condemn Christ without even giving him a hearing. It happens today, just as it happened with the religious authorities in Jesus' day. Our job is to keep pointing them to the truth, to the evidence in God's word, and praying that God in his kindness would move them from the darkness into his wonderful light. Peter we find in denial, the authorities are in the dark, but Jesus, wonderfully, we find in control. Have a look at chapter 18, verse 4. It's a, it's a verse that we looked at last week. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, 
Who is it that you want? Jesus knew everything. He's been in control every single step of the way. So in a scene of surrounding chaos, really, which is what we've got here, it feels like things are running out of control. Jesus is, in fact, in supreme control as he's moving all things towards the fulfillment of his mission. And he's not just in control of himself, verse 23, when he gets struck by that, uh, that official but he's in control of all things, even human sin. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter are both under his sovereign rule. Have a look again at the verse that we mentioned earlier. Then Jesus answered, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And now have a look where we finish this morning in chapter 18, verse 27. Again, Peter denied it for the third time. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. It happened just as Jesus said it would. And for that to happen, he has to be in control of every single detail, the movements of Peter, the questions of others, even the cockle-doodle-doo of a rooster is under the supreme sovereign rule of Christ. Now, I hope that makes you smile. To know that the Lord Jesus, the loving God, is ruling over all things. Because you know what? Our world today is a bit of a mess, right? Does it not feel like our life and this world is sometimes running out of control? God wants to remind us this morning from John chapter 18 that he is still in charge, and wonderfully so. There's an old lady called Enid who used to go to Hans Home Church in Devon. Uh, She's gone to glory now to be with Jesus, but she told me about uh, a time living through the Second World War, and she's in the kitchen under the table with her mum and her two sisters, and it's a Nazi bombing raid, and there are bombs dropping all around chaos all around and they're sat under the most secure place they could find under their kitchen table and as the bombs are dropping as the sirens are going so they sing together God's still on the throne maybe that's what life feels like for you today a mess everywhere pain frustration sirens noise mayhem hurts disappointments running out of control. God is still on the throne. Jesus does not make mistakes. The denial of Peter was no mistake. The darkness of the authorities and the sham of a trial was no mistake. The green mile that Jesus walked for you was no mistake. The cross of Christ, what happened on that little hill called Calvary, outside Jerusalem, was no mistake. And the detail of life today, whatever is happening in your life, however tough things might feel, it is no mistake. God is wonderfully ordering all things according to his good purposes for the benefit of his people and for the glory of his name. And I hope that encourages you.
this morning. Peter was in denial. The authorities were in the dark. But wonderfully, the Lord Jesus is in supreme control. Why don't you take a moment now to talk to God? Just on your own, spend a moment maybe in light of what God has spoken to you this morning before we come to the Lord's table together.